Hello, you lovelies, and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the film podcast safe haven for the unloved, unwanted, and underappreciated. I'm Rob, and this is Simon and James. How are you, you G units? <laughs> Such a gentle opening. <laughs> Until we went full Lloyd Banks. Yeah, like yeah. You, you're about to read a bedtime story on CBeebies. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put this out there right now. That is my ultimate gig. That I want that gig. Anyone listening? I want that gig. <laughs> what the Lloyd Banks concert? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, can I be a hype man? Just a hype man for genius. <laughs> I went to see 50 Cent, you know, when he was massive at the yes. um, at the MEN Arena with two of my pals. He was, was only on for an hour, and Lloyd Banks was on the stage with him. He only had, well, he only had the one album, and you, uh, wait, I don't know if you've ever been to a hip-hop concert before, but they basically just do one verse, the hook, and then... Big explosion, and basically they move on to the next song. <laughs> but he only had one album to go through so it took him like 35 minutes to get through the album <laughs> and then a bit of the obligatory chit chat like how are you doing Manchester you know, uh, yeah yeah we're yeah. doing fine 50 it was quite aggressive to be fair if I remember correctly <laughs> James I think I might have been at the same concert yeah Fabulous was supporting do you remember Fabulous from back in the I day I do yeah but I don't I don't remember whether I saw him I'm not sure uh, might have been in the aperitif area of the MLM, <laughs> as it was called back then. Um, I do remember um, seeing Usher at the uh, MEN as well. And um, there was a moment where he was off stage and he, he like, the whole arena was black. And he, he went like, yeah! <laughs> and a bed was wheeled out onto the stage and he was new, like almost nude on the bed. Like just a massive double bed. And like... On, in hindsight, as a nearly 40-year-old man, this was spectacularly cringe. At the time, I was like, this man is a legend. He's an absolute icon. He is a musical genius. Not since Michael me. Jackson has anyone wowed a crowd. As he, as, is he, and then he started grinding about in his boxer shorts. It was most unedifying. What do all the guys do during that? I, I mean, I, well, no, this guy was like, ah, Dasha. <laughs> Well then, so what a way to sully the end of that <laughs> Sorry, that was my fault completely. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a, a naughty's hip-hop segue. Right I know, I know. But I did, oh dear, while we're on that, I have to talk about <laughs> seeing, seeing uh, T-Pain at Oldham Leisure Centre. <laughs> Promised VIP tickets, got there and walked in and like he, like the guy on the stage looked remarkably like T-Pain. Turns out they didn't have an alcohol licence, so he had to go on at half eight. <laughs> He was done by half nine. We all were. <laughs> he actually played at Oldham Leisure Centre? Yeah, he did, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the VIP area was, he sang in the lobby! <laughs> <laughs> the concert was in the lobby of Oldham Leisure Centre. Is it like a working man's club? It did. The carpets were eerily reminiscent. <laughs> so poor T-Pain couldn't buy anyone a drink. <laughs> no, no, no. Neither could any of his, uh, well, the people there. You know, I obviously was looking forward to a few dranks with T-Pain. Um, but, um, but no, 
Um, and, and the VIP area. <laughs> I want to buy to, you like, a drink. Well, it sounds like you can't in Oldham, as you said. You can't, Mr. Pain. doesn't matter how sprung you are. You can't do it. <laughs> yeah, the VIP area was um, like, um, it had one of those little, you know, like little ropey things just around a it. A rope. It was just cord. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what the, what incredible adventures in uh, in hip hop. Um, have you guys watched anything good rather than discuss nineties hip hop live experiences? To bring us a little more current, I have ploughed through a load of twenty twenty one releases since we last spoke. Oh, nice! Go go. On my birthday, I went to see the French Dispatch. So, uh, people who don't like Wes Anderson, this won't be the one to win you over, but I enjoyed <laughs> it quite a bit. It's minor Anderson, but still a visual treat all the same. Um, what else have I seen? Finch on Apple TV+. Plus. Oh, I saw Finch. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? I, I did lovely. Really lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lovely. It's not the most original movie ever made, but Tom Hanks, a lovable dog, and a good-natured robot take a melancholy tri- uh, road trip across the wastelands of post-apocalyptic America. It's good stuff. Mm. Incredible. Got to have the tissues ready. That robot's really fit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... it's uh... Who is it who does the voice of the robot? Uh, Caleb Landry Jones. Yes. Yeah, he's excellent. (laughs) When he's coming up with a name, it's like William Shakespeare. Call me William Shakespeare. And he's like, no, that's taken. You can't do that. Very good. And then the hilarious riff riff on 22 Jump Street, where he just basically goes, my name's Jeff. Sounds good, this. It's it is unintentional, good. but yeah, really, really good. My name's Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Uh, saw June as well. That was just absolutely fantastic. So glad that it's getting the second part because it would have been a real downer if they'd just gone, nah, we're not bothering now because it literally <laughs> is half the book. You get to the midpoint, bosh, stop. Yeah. And then one I wanted to shout out, which is actually just started streaming on... Disney Plus um, here in the UK because we get all the Fox Searchlight stuff because um, the way the rights have been divided up. So we get Disney Plus Star over here, don't we? Mm. Which I don't think you get in the States. So The Night House, which stars Rebecca Hall. So it's an unrelentingly creepy, deeply atmospheric piece of slow burn horror. Narratively, it does become a little haphazard as the overarching mystery reveals itself in the final act. But that's a minor quibble for a film that is elevated above standard haunted house tropes by lots of inventive camera trickery, well-executed jump scares, and a stunning central performance from Rebecca Hall. Really, really good stuff, so I would recommend people checking that one out. So, yeah, nice. I've had a plethora of stuff. It's been really good. Oh, smashing. Absolutely loved, love all this stuff. Uh, Sai, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I caught a few of those films as well. Um, yeah, The Night House was great. I, the sound design especially on that as well, was was brilliant. Yeah, I really enjoyed that night house. I can't, I, I've spent a lot of my cinema budget on watching June like three times. Uh, <laughs> Have you? Yes. I, I. It just ticked, for me, it just ticked every single box when it comes to making a movie to impress my big northern face. 
I just thought it was brilliant. I, I really do. Um, oh. I thought every every little fragment of this sprawling world fits perfectly into the the sandbox Villeneuve has loving, lovingly made as well because he's quite well documented that he was a big fan of the book. And uh, I think there was an interview where he said, "I made this film for myself and only myself." <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's so rad! Just, uh, but it's it, you could it just it's just all on screen. Like, there's so much love gone into it. I thought it was just magnificent. I've seen a lot of people whinge about how it's, it, as James said, it ends on the halfway point. Yeah. And now another complaint was that it was just wholly exposition, so the whole dialogue was just geared around world building and setting up the character set of the story. I don't have a problem with that. I'm like, fine. You know, um, I don't think it should be considered a weakness. It's not Pulp Fiction. They're not going to sit around talking about intergalactic <laughs> burgers that they had on different planets. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, honestly, I, I don't think since Lord of the Rings has the blockbuster bar been raised by such a level. I absolutely loved it. Wow. Um, hence why I've seen it three times. Because <laughs> um, my... Uh... Wonderful sister-in-law, um, Susie, who is um, a big listener of the show. Hey, Suze. She's uh, went by herself to see it. Um, and she said it was the first time she's done that in quite a while. And she said, I have to go and see it. Just like you have to see it on the biggest, boldest screen possible. Was that is that an assessment you'd agree with, Si? Absolutely. I, I saw it, I saw it in a, on a digital screen first, like an 8K digital one, which looked great, but the sound wasn't quite there. And then I watch it on an IMAX, which I expected to get a lot more out of it visually. It, it, you get this weird thing with IMAX screens where sometimes it gets a bit dull, mm. but the sound was just like, pfft, like blow your dick off. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, you know, do you know my my Christmas present? Um, apparently to to myself is a vasectomy. Uh, would you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good score from Zimmer as well. Like, I mean, when does he ever do something what's not brilliant? But um, well, this is true. This is I think he, he even excels himself uh, on this one. It's, really? it's very good. Yeah, you've made me mind up for me. I'm going. I'm going. Yeah, I, I think you'll dig it, Rob. I think you'll really yeah. like it. Yeah, everything about it is is really very good. And old Timothy Chalamet is is a very magnetic presence leading such in a massive cast as well yeah well i really like that surname chalamet oh it's great yeah you know what it is with him i was trying to put my th- finger on it on what it is and basically he's this generation remember leonardo dicaprio in the 90s and how he was like um a heartthrob for all teenage girls but he was clearly a really talented actor as well mm. and that's basically what he is now for for that generation absolutely yeah yeah, because I remember going to see Romeo and Juliet when he was in that, when DiCaprio was in that phase, and the screen was full of giggling teenage girls. Yeah. So if that sort of crowd are the one, are the the people who are responsible for getting a sequel to June, that's why you cast certain people in certain yeah. movies. <laughs> that's why you put Zendaya in the movie because she's got five billion Instagram followers. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> Lovely. What have you seen, Rob? Uh, well, I've been to the cinema twice in these last two weeks, uh, and I've also watched a ton of movies at home, which has been good. But notable shout-outs. 
Um, I saw Adam's Family 2 at the cinema. I knew um, you were going to say that. I was, I was yeah, because <laughs> I talked about seeing Adam's Family 1. I know the other one he's going to say as well. <laughs> ah, well, you know. Um, but Adam's Family 2 was good. I think, it, I mean, it's really fun. Um, but at the same time, it's just uh, narratively. You know, as if I'm talking about narrative questions with the Adam's Family 2 movie. But, like, there wasn't enough punch to the story that made me think, ah, this is better than the first one. But the kids absolutely loved it. So that was the main thing. I rewatched the movies of those not long ago over Halloween. The, the live action movie. Yeah. They're really They're good. They're saucy. They're really, really good movies. They are. And they haven't dated at all. They're, they're, they're still excellent. brilliant, yeah. Because they're, they're, they feel like period pieces. They're just so well done. Um, yeah. Yeah. And really funny. And really, like, darkly funny as well. Yeah, they um, are. They there's really a lot are. of jokes for, like, jokes for the whole family uh, yes. <laughs> in those films. Um, right, sorry. A notable, so no, no. In Adam's Family Two, there was a notable, notable uplift of Snoop Dogg's presence uh, playing cousin <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> Snoop Dogg's cousin it. I didn't know that. I'm going. He was, he was cousin it in the first one, and all he was was like, <laughs> and then it was like it was revealed in the credits. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. <laughs> sorry, cousin it was played by Snoop Dogg. And then in this one, it's like cousin it arrives like on a jet, like. That's bouncing and all, you know, all that. and uh, oh, it's just nonsense. Um, but I, I also watched. Um, I revisited one of our old uh, favourites, um, The Lost World, Jurassic Park Two. Held up really great again. Really enjoyed that flipping movie. Uh, watched Jurassic World again. Really enjoyed that again. Although I now hijack your phrase massively, James, when they're all let out of the gates and it's like, Raptor Bros. <laughs> <laughs> He's shaking his head, ladies and gents. <laughs> I'm still not over it in his stupid <laughs> waistcoat. Oh, on, on that, on... <laughs> waistcoat! I started that pile on, on Chris Pratt on Twitter the other week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, everyone seems to really not like Chris Pratt. <laughs> he does make some interesting choices, but anyway. Um, <laughs> where is the trailer for Dominion, by the way? I don't know. Have they finished it yet? I'm not sure there is one yet. Yeah, this is it. Where is it? We've not had one. They're probably wondering whether they're going to move it or not. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. why they're holding that back. That's probably true. Because it's very busy next summer, so I don't know if they're going to mm. see the lay of the land from a COVID perspective. Mm. Having seen a well, one of the movies I'm going to talk about very soon. Um, having seen that and what that's done to the cinema landscape. Uh, speaking of which, I did see the action adventure film of the year. An incredible villain, brilliant plot, character arcs that I really understood, and I'm really excited about the future of the franchise. Um, the Paw Patrol movie was amazing. <laughs> sorry, I've done. I've done that. I've done that joke already on Twitter, I'm sorry. Is that what your guess was, James? Yes, I knew he'd <laughs> I'm so lucky that my son isn't into Paw Patrol at all. We went to a, a fifth birthday party at the weekend and uh, Marshall came out in like a costume and stuff like that. And I went, oh, look, it's Marshall. And he went, shrugged his shoulders and went off back to the wall. <laughs> So yeah, I've dodged the Paw Patrol bullet. I like how I like how your uh, um, when it comes to you, Rob, on this, what you've been watching, it's like Kids Corner. <laughs> it is, it is, it is really good because they've they've really got into movies, which is amazing, which is absolutely amazing. Um, so I get to show them, you know, ever more interesting stuff. The older that they get, did they like the Lost World? They loved it. 
Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, they did say, you know, when the T-Rex was in San Diego at the end, they were like, is this a different movie? <laughs> <laughs> fair point. Yes, you know? it's it. Fair, <laughs> fair point. <laughs> <sighs> but no, it was... Uh, truthfully, on Paw Patrol, I really enjoyed it. It gave me action sequences in an animated movie I've never seen before. <laughs> it did. I, there's no, it's legit. Um and at the end, a bit of an emotional moment. Might have got a little tear in the eye. So, James's face! Honestly, if I could have screenshot that then, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, I love these little catch-ups about what we've been watching. Um, I'm sure there's something else interesting I've watched, but I can't think about it right now. Um, <laughs> but we do have a question this week, uh, don't we? And Simon, you've this came from your grey matter. Yes, indeed. Um, so with tonight's movie uh, featuring an extremely well-known character, but played by someone other than the actor who made that character famous, I would say, I want to know your favourite version or iteration of a character that has been played by multiple actors over the years. So it could be across all mediums, so like film, TV, stage, fictional or real. Such a massive question. Yeah, so th- this is obviously something that is much more synonymous within comic book movies and long-running franchises. So obviously next year we're getting a new Batman film, aren't we? So every single character within that world now has been recast. So we've got a new <laughs> Alfred, we've got a new Commissioner Gordon. It's like it's like a line-out on a, on a hockey team, isn't it? <laughs> every single time they do a reboot. When, a, when, a, um, when you can make a five-a-side team, on just Batmans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably doing it a bit too much, lads. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what, one of my favourite ones, uh, I've tried to sort of stay away from sort of more... Well, it, it tends to be within fr- uh, franchises, and that's the same sort of case, even within sort of, you know, uh, prestige franchises. So I only saw Godfather 2 for the first time a couple of years ago all the way through because I felt like it had sort of been spoiled because it's so sort of synonymous within within the culture. And one thing that had sort of put me off watching it was I didn't buy De Niro as a... Just from looking at pictures, I didn't buy De Niro as a young Brando. And then you put the movie on and like within like 10 seconds, it's like, oh, yeah, they're the same person. He's a very good actor, this Robert De Niro. He's got to go places. Like he got all of his mannerisms down as well. And he wasn't doing an impression of uh, of Brando as Corleone at all. And he'd learned all that Italian and just the way that he carried himself. It's like, oh, yeah, they're just the same person and yeah it was just i suppose that's coming out from a slightly different angle in terms of actors who've who've played different iterations of the same role so with some disrespect to william shatner but i think chris pine is a far superior uh captain kirk to old shot oh, <laughs> yeah. and i quite like the that very first jj abrams reboot film the the one I with like eric that. banner as, together, as the villain james did we yeah, we did. Oh, right. I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure it was a magical evening. <laughs> but Not that magical. <laughs> it was an afternoon screening, James, and I can't believe you don't remember it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it rocks that movie. I was obviously so, it's so lost in Chris Pine's <laughs> gorgeous eyes and in sticking it to the shot. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, w- I will say, I don't want Chris Pine getting too 
uh, too big-headed here because he isn't superior in one other role that was made famous by the fact that it's been played by multiple A-list actors, and that is Jack Ryan. So five A-list actors have taken on the role of Tom Clancy's CIA agent, but for me, Harrison Ford is the one true Jack. I love those two Jack Ryan movies that he made in the mid-90s. Uh, Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games, absolutely brilliant. So who who played who played the others? Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin got one go, and then he got canned for Harrison Ford. And then uh, I don't know if that was an, like a conscious decision or if it changed studios, and or they just went, oh, we can get Harrison Ford. <laughs> so let's go and get him. And then Baffleck. Baffleck uh, did do one. Ben Affleck, yeah. Some of all fears. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris Pine did one in the imaginatively titled Jack Ryan and then <laughs> and then again once again imaginatively titled uh, Jack Ryan has been rebooted for TV on Amazon and he's played by John Krasinski now oh Krasinski yeah I forgot about That's that produced by Michael Bay that series so it's mm. not bad actually apparently it's really good it's alright yeah yeah cool what about you Rob aside from the obvious James Bond <laughs> I mean obviously we don't want this to be just Praising Daniel Craig nonstop. Like, <laughs> right, that's just give it a rest. <laughs> that's enough. Uh, I just, if I could just add to what you said, James, about um, Vito Corleone, they're inseparable, aren't they? Those yeah. two portrayals of it. But is this, is this a case of someone coming in and having another crack at a character that actually somehow adds to the weight and performance of the first movie of the first iteration of the character because for me when once i've seen de niro in this in godfather 2 yeah i look back at godfather 1 and i just it's it feels all the more complete to me because i've seen that you know what i mean it's just incredible isn't it you just there's nothing like i don't think there's any other example of this where someone else comes into a role and it actually makes someone else look better in that same role. Not that Marlon Brando particularly needs to look better, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it just adds a new dimension to it, doesn't it? Yeah. And the fact that you can see how much time and care that De Niro took, obviously observing Brando's performance in the first film mm. and then imbuing that in his portrayal as well. It's just magnificent. Yeah. I'm actually quite scared of the Godfather movies because they're, they're almost too good. It's almost yeah. too... Two up here, you know, it's it's too good for me at, at times. You know, like I, I enjoy them so much, it's like intimidating. In the superhero world, you mentioned that about it's pretty commonplace, isn't it? I'm not going to go into the main characters, but I actually really liked um, everyone who played Jonathan Kent, superhero. Uh, sorry, Superman's dad, superhero's oh, dad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> generic superhero's father. Um, yeah, I loved everyone who played Jonathan Kent. I even really liked Costner. Thought Costner was great in in Man of Steel. Honestly, Costner was the best bit of the <laughs> of the Zack Snyder movie. Be. Oh, I thought he was the best bit of that movie. Yeah, him and Russell Crowe as well. He played um, yeah Thingy Dad, Krypton Dad. Oh, oh as Jor El, because you can you can split it both ways, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, Costner was so good in that movie that I didn't actually agree with the advice that he was giving to Superman. I thought it was terrible advice, but he was selling it so well that I was all... <laughs> I was like, yeah, all right, fair enough. <laughs> Should I save people? No. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> That's basically... No, don't. Of... Don't do it. Let them die in the burning building and the bu- the drowning. <laughs> Let all your school friends drown in the bus as it goes. Into the <laughs> um... Can I uh, also throw into this? Robin Hood's been played many, many times, but my oh, yeah, two, yeah. Fa- two faves are the crisp animated fox um, <laughs> and Kevin Costner. 
obviously. It's father. Uh, <laughs> Robin of Larks. <laughs> Robin. Robin. Uh, Lisbeth Salander. Yes. Numera Pace and, oh gosh, help me here. Rooney Mara. Rooney, Rooney Mara. Mara. Yeah, that's right. Both really good. But I think Rapace's original take was just like, it was star building, you know, yeah. like explosively star building. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. Um, you guys, desperate for me to talk Bond, I know you are. Um, so I'll just give a little nod to Tim Dalton being the best Bond. Um, yeah, never mind the guy who killed him. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. And um, Robert Brown played M. He's my favourite M, Robert Brown. But I don't know whether this, is, whether this is the same character, because possibly Robert Brown, well, he appeared in um, Spy Love Me as Admiral Hargreaves. And I thought that maybe he was promoted so that, the, you know, the name M yeah. is just, it, they're not the same role. Mm. It's just different people have gone up in the organisation to get that title. So I don't know whether that really counts. So what I will say is uh, the Felix Leiter. I really like, um, this is James Bond's CIA best mate. Really like uh, all the incarnations pretty much of Felix Leiter. Um, uh, Jeffrey Wright was the one who uh, had the mantle most recently. But I really like David Hedison, um, who was the sacrificial lamb in Licence to Kill. But this is such a good question, and it made me... Maybe really happy looking at all. There's a lot more than you think, isn't there? There really is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Really buzzing researching my answer to this, actually, Uh, because I had like I've got reams of notes on Elias Cotius and uh, playing Casey Jones being better than (laughs) Stephen Amell and Chris Evans. You know, (laughs) this is it. This is it's so good. But yeah, anyway, Sai, what about you? Uh, I I was really basic and um, looked at Spider Man first because I've had this (laughs) weird. I, I've had this weird, you know, where you're like flicking through, man, you can't find a movie to watch, and you're not really in yeah. the mood to have a serious movie. And you don't really just want to watch. So I just re watched all the Spider Man films again. Was this because, what's the new one called? No Way Home. No Way Home. No Way Home. All um, the drama surrounding this and the that stupid Dingleberry is leaked stills from it and he's in he's in a lot of trouble with Tony because <laughs> he leaked some stills <laughs> it was the guy who had a meltdown when he found out Robert Pattinson wasn't working out to play Batman and he had a massive rant online about it <laughs> had a big meltdown oh it's so funny why was he upset about that sorry it's a slight segue what was he upset about there because uh, he said he wasn't right for the role because he wasn't putting his putting his heart and soul into it and Pattinson was just like fuck off <laughs> do what I want <laughs> Who is this guy? Uh, I don't want to name drop him, but um, yeah, he also said a couple of weeks ago that people who leak spoilers should be fined $1 million. (laughs) Um, And then two weeks later, leaked two humongous spoilers for a very eagerly anticipated. He might get his wish then if he plays his cards. He's definitely not going to any screeners for the for the film. Well, he's not on our Christmas card list either. But it's 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 so so I rewatched them all, um, and the first one, Sam Raimi's first one, is still the best. film by a country mile. It's absolutely brilliant. But all the other ones really like I I just completely changed my opinion on them. (laughs) Um, The Amazing Spider Man Two is really good. It is, isn't it? It is. Which I. Which I well, that's everyone's been led to believe that's the worst one, but it's it's really bloody good. It's it's yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, but Garfield's movies I, are excellent. 
Yeah, they're they're but I think Tom Holland's films are the weakest ones, but he is probably my favourite Spider Man because he's just so lovable. Um, and he's got the nerdy thing right, and he's so yeah. awkward around people. Um, and he can actually pass for a teenager, which is quite... And he can pass for a teenager, <laughs> like 27-year-old. Extremely well, important. The, but that's the big problem with the first Amazing Spider-Man, is he's a bit of a dick, and you're just like... It's oh, too cool. That's the problem. Too, yeah, I don't really... Yeah, I don't really... But they fix him in the second one. He's a lot better in the second one. He's a lot mm. more likeable. Um, but then also, uh, one of the most... Famous characters in the history of books and film and TV. Uh, Gary Oldman as Dracula was oh yes, just fantastic. So like, just weirdly sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Just like he's just very good, and and I love that film. I love the the theatre of that movie and all the staging of it. And Gary Oldman is just so over the top and just yeah, I think he's he's great. And uh, uh, the you know there are some absolute legendary performances in that in that role like Bella Lugosi and Christopher Lee but I just thought Alden was was absolutely brilliant that's ace I love that Co- Coppola uh, Dracula though because like everyone's just going so big in every single scene <laughs> like even Tony Hopkins comes in and goes steady on lads let's let's just screw it down a little bit <laughs> Have you have you seen the behind the scenes of uh, Gary Oldman like in full makeup, just oh, speaking amazing, in a Cockney accent? What do we do, Francis? What do we fucking what what the fucking stairs? What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> <It's so good. laughs> Does he qualify for us? He might do. I don't know. People don't like it. I think it. Yeah, I think it probably does. I'd love two hours chatting with you boys about it. It's. I'd. I'd love that. Bit. I think I've mentioned it on a previous pod after watching it recently. But uh, it's on the list. It's on the yeah, list. Isn't everything in camera in that movie as well? Like all the it effects. Is, yeah, everything. all the effects are yeah. in camera as well. It's just. And it's all like um silhouette puppetry and things like that. And yeah, it's all makeup and wind machines and it's very good it's very very good um, francis what do you want me to do <laughs> <laughs> i want down a fucking stairs that's what you said didn't you <laughs> <It's so good. laughs> what a good accent <sighs> lovely chat fellows 35 minutes in still haven't got to the film <laughs> um, <laughs> um so whose pick was it this week it was mine so, shall I do a logline? Please do. Yeah, give us a logline, please, please, please. So, in tonight's film, a brillo-haired nut job with a badge must enlist the help of a certain well-known bitey doctor to track down a killer before he strikes again. The film is Michael Mann's uber-stylish Manhunter. Give me that synth. Intruder entered through kitchen sliding door. Nationwide victims. Yeah, this is Will Graham of the FBI. One killer. This is what the subject's teeth look like.
seen blood on the moonlight well? William, you're gonna make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One hunter. I'm gonna find you, damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Manhunter. Manhunter. Wow. Um, James, what what is it about Manhunter that made you think this is perfect for FYR? Uh, so I think it's been largely forgotten. So I love Michael Mann. He's one of my favourite directors. And I think this is one of his best films. And it's often overlooked, not only within his filmography, but in the Hannibal Lecter series as a whole. And I think it also as well, what I do want to get across here is like, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be all smart and go, oh, this is better than Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Silence of the Lambs is an amazing movie, like a proper five star masterpiece of a film. Yeah. But this is also very, very good. Um, and it doesn't, it's not held in the same esteem as that other film when I believe that it should be. Mm, love it. Love it. Yeah. And I love that, that you, you know, <laughs> listeners hold on to your hats two films two different films can be good don't you know (laughs) (laughs) hold on to yourselves um so james what was your experience with with manhunter prior to this so i'm not sure when i first saw it i do know that i saw it after uh silence of the lambs and i actually joined it i was i was flicking around on tv one night and i joined it during the uh will graham and hannibal lecter first meeting and I didn't know what it was but it, it grabbed me straight away and I was like hmm he's a bit of a he seems like a bit of a Hannibal Lecter type character and then you realize that it's Manhunter that you're watching also because it's <laughs> called Manhunter and not Red Dragon I had no idea that it was part of the same yeah series and yeah I was just gripped by it watched it all the way through on that and then then later got it on DVD and watched it from the very beginning <laughs> uh but yeah no I just thought it was excellent and Really, really well made, and yeah, I, I was gripped by it. I've seen it a number of times since. Nice. What about you, Sight? What's your relationship with Manhunter? I can't really remember like when I watched it for the first time. I think, like James, I watched it after Silence of the Lambs, and you know, because I was quite young. Well, I, I wasn't even born when this originally came out, but when Silence of the Lambs came out, I was very young, so I only knew of Hannibal Lecter through sort of pop culture references and it being on you know references to him on TV all the time um, and it was obviously the Anthony Hopkins one and I think the first time I watched it was my dad mentioned it and said like oh did you know trying to be like smart ass dad like did you know there was someone who played it before Sir Anthony Hopkins <laughs> yeah. um and pointed me towards Manhunter and that's when I watched it I think I watched it with him um ages ago and yeah Michael Mann is you know, he's a he's a familiar name, and he's a certainly a well revered name from my perspective. But he doesn't seem to get the love as other directors do, who are on that. Who should you know? He is on that level, and he doesn't really get the plaudits as much. And this is one of those examples, I think. Yeah, um, I can echo this. I'm a, also a massive Michael Mann fan. Um, I feel like you can spot his movies a mile away. You know, when they're on telly, like. When they come on, there's a class and style to them that is just immediate. 
but I'd never seen this. I'd seen, uh, obviously, Sounds of the Lambs, um, Red Dragon and Hannibal, and always enjoyed all of those three. Uh, you know, waning as we go through. Sounds <laughs> of the Lambs, Hannibal, then Red Dragon. I think Hannibal is actually really good. That's the Ridders one, isn't it? It, it is, got, yeah. It's a, bit, it's a bit mad, that one. <laughs> I, read the, uh, I read the novel Hannibal uh, in the last month, and you know what? Ridley did his best with that <laughs> It's really? even more insane, the novel. The, really? <laughs> oh, my word. Well, because uh, the novels were Robert Harris, weren't they? Um, Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris. I'm so sorry. Thomas Harris. And they're all really good, to be fair. Even Hannibal, yeah. which is... Because you're sort of invested by them. Because I've read all, I've read all three of them this year. Yeah. Uh, Red Dragon, Signs of the Lambs. Real page-turning, great, pulpy novels. And then... Hannibal, you sort of you're in for the ride, basically. You know the character at this stage. Yeah, because you, yeah, you're yeah. you're completely invested. So all the crazy stuff that happens with it, you're happy to go with it. It's not nowhere near as good as those first two novels, but yeah, still very enjoyable. And uh, yeah, uh, it's been really good going through those novels, and then I've, that's sort of what triggered picking the film for me this nice, uh, nice. on this occasion. I was so excited when you said this because all I've heard like ever is just people saying, you know, people who like movies that Manhunter is a brilliant film and it's totally underrated and a number of things are lost in this. William Peterson and Brian Cox are lost in the sort of the the furore of all the oh Hannibal Lecter stuff that comes afterwards. Um later in the sort of the cinematic timeline. So I was really excited to watch it. But this was a first watch shamefully get out <laughs> <laughs> um so I, wait, I mean i it's hard not to pin my colors to the mast here but um i cannot picture this qualifies through critical reception surely well with uh with manhunter it, uh, you know our usual metric of rotten tomatoes and metacritic aren't the most reliable um due to the fact that they kind of pull in retrospective modern takes, mm. and it is this as this film's from '86, and you know, sort of getting hold of reviews from that long ago. They, they kind of fall by the wayside on these um, aggregate websites. So nowadays, it's almost all generally positive. Um, with Ian Nathan and Mark Dinning from Empire both gave it five stars in 2000, 2003. I imagine one was a DVD release and one was a like a sort of retrospective review. Um, Ali Barkley from the BBC calling it a truly suspenseful, stylish thriller that has sadly been overlooked since Silence of the Lambs. Time Out also gave it five, lauding it as one of the most impressive American thrillers of the late 80s. Um, if you just look at Rotten Tomatoes, it might just be the highest rated film we've done so far with 93%. Wow. But on release, it was met with something of a lukewarm reception with many critics of the day Seeing the film as an exercise in style over substance, um, with the New York Times calling Michael Mann's approach hokey, uh, and Dave Kerr in the Chicago Tribune saying, Mann believes in style so much that he has very little belief left over for the characters or situations of his film, which suffers accordingly. Rob is giving the Vs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you went full turkey, not Not to be, yeah. hopefully. Um, and and I you know while it's still high on Metacritic, I do think that's the reason why it's seventy five on there. Um, I did actually uh, fire a message to the old sheriff on Twitter to see if he had a review knocking around of Manhunter, and he didn't. Unfortunately, he he said the reviewer um, he he wasn't he was quite new at the time, so he wasn't given big movies like Manhunter. 
but the San Francisco Chronicle guy who did review it gave it zero and said it was um, awful and just hated every every minute of it. Um, oh my word! So yeah, re- reviews of the time. You know, it's certainly a film that's got better with people looking back on it rather than um, when it came out. So yeah, it's um it's it's a tricky one to judge, but if we're looking at it, you know, now it's yeah, it's a roaring success on those aggregate websites. Do you think that that's down to the fact that Michael Mann was very much seen as a television producer at the time? He was Mr. Miami Vice, even though he'd made Thief in 1981, which is also an absolutely brilliant movie, and he wasn't maybe being taken seriously as a prestige filmmaker at the time. You know, this isn't Michael Mann who made Heat. Yeah. He's not got to that stage yet. So do you think it was almost like, right, well, this TV guy has tried to direct this and we're just going to come in and say, oh, he's just tried to make it look like Miami Vice. And they've sort of lined up to maybe give him a bit of a kicking because they didn't realise how what a technically proficient filmmaker he would go on to be. Possibly. That's certainly what I gathered from looking at, you know, it's only a handful of reviews you can get from from 86, but yeah. a lot of them were saying, oh, it's just as ridiculous as Miami Vice. It just looks as, you know, as I say, there's no substance to it. That that was a lot of the criticism was kind yeah. of along those lines. Um, and I think you're right, because there's no, there's no sort of kudos attached to him, really, is there at this point? No. You know, he's, he's certainly not a, 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 like, you know, tempole director who audiences would flock to see you know in spite of miami vice being hugely popular um in the 80s you've got to remember the snobbery around tv 30 odd years ago there was no prestige it wasn't seen as a prestige art form like it is these days like people basically every actor who was working in tv wanted to work in movies and if you went from movies back to tv it was seen as a massive career backstep so yeah, I think it was a it's a little bit of snobbery on the part of the critical fraternity there. Oh, this TV guy coming here thinking he can direct features, mm. and then obviously he directs a couple of masterpieces in the nineties, and everyone changed their tune essentially. Yeah, it's so sad that people are that short sighted about this sort of thing. Yeah, I, what I never get about that criticism is like oh. Like, I don't know how you can look at this film and just look at it from a purely... Right, so maybe the aesthetic doesn't work from you, but in terms of the narrative, in terms of the story and the economy of storytelling within this... this There's no fat on this movie at all, and it runs two hours. And it's all really, really intricately put together. It, that on its own, and then it's just like, oh yeah, can you give us a more visually boring version of this of this film? It doesn't make any sense at all. Stop showing off. It. Stop showing off that you're good at visuals and story. You big this show guy, off. Honestly, in this film, Michael Mann does more with a shot of the back of a television set than most filmmakers can do with five million dollars. Yeah, like seriously, it's that good. Um, sorry, that's spoiler alert for how I feel about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's so weird because this is back in the day as well, where they're like the sort of spacing between releases was massive. I don't think it came out in the UK until like three years later or something like that. Wow. Yeah. So it was 86, it was a summer 86 release in the States. Um, James, you know, you'll obviously get to the box office in a second. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. So it was released in the States on the 15th of August in 1986. It opened in 779 theatres, which sounds to me like quite a large 
uh, quite a wide release and grossed 2.2 uh, million on in its opening weekend. And then the film eventually grossed a total of eight and a half million in the US and the budget was around 15 million. And then, as you say, there was a delay in it coming out in other territories. The French loved it or straight away. It got like a critics uh, film award when it was first released. So the French loved it, but it didn't come out in the UK until 12 months later. And then obviously it didn't do any business and it just sort of died. It's just mad that because that was even the case when we were sort of teenagers. The gap between... yeah. Mm. when stuff was brought out in in America to the difference in the UK. And then by then, it's just going to die a death because no one really cares about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what potentially hurt the film's box office is that delay. I think in this instance, so this film is produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who is a, something of a colourful character in terms of uh, movie production. And I think he was, I've read that there was some sort of disputes with distributors, which was the problem with it being delayed in coming out overseas. And then Dino De Laurentiis also changed the title of the movie, which both Michael Mann hated and William Peterson hated. So, as you know, the the novel is called Red Dragon and the film was supposed to be called that. But De Laurentiis made the change uh, to Manhunter because Michael uh, Cimino's film, Year of the Dragon, produced by De Laurentiis in 1985, bombed at the box office. And apparently De Laurentiis didn't want people to think that it was a martial arts film, so he took the word dragon out and called it <laughs> Manhunter instead. But if you've got a best-selling novel, right, and that's your key piece of marketing because you've not because you know William Peterson's in this movie and he's relatively well known but he's not a huge A-list star it's not like you've got Tom Cruise in in the lead role here you know the selling point is the book this is an adaptation of that really popular book but we're not gonna call it that we're gonna call it Manhunter which is just a really generic title yeah and like the the, the sort of um the the sort of design of the title as well is just a bit lame like you oh, just look it's at so the poster. Lame. Yeah, it's the worst thing about the film. Yeah, yeah, it's... it's just so you just have no idea what the film is, and you know we we spoke about posters the other week on like how they sell movies, and they do have an effect on whether people go and see this. If you've got the poster standing up, like hanging up in the lobby, and it's this crappy font and a, a hyper stylized picture of the main star, who, as you say, is not an A list star, people are just going to be like, "What the fuck's that?" I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if you've not got on the poster based on the book Red Dragon, you know, the best-selling novel, then you've lost that audience as well. It's just it's so bizarre how you're going to blame the use of a word dragon. It's like we're in the was it in the 90s where people took and the noughties took out the, the word Mars from films because of Carpenter's yeah. <laughs> Ghost of Mars bombed. And you're like, oh, it's because you've got Mars in the title. No one's interested. And you're like, it's not because of that, is it? Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I mean, it sounds like there's interesting stuff going on behind the scenes during this, you know, production anyway. Um, but should we get into the, the film itself? Absolutely. As soon as I hear 80s synth straight away... I'm having a good time. Absolutely. I thought it was Tangerine Dream, but it's not. I think he used Tangerine Dream on Thief. I don't know if you guys have seen Thief, the safecracker movie that he made with James Caan. It's oh, it's impeccable. I think that probably qualified. I'll have to bring that one time. I hope it's still on Netflix because I went to watch it a couple of years ago on Netflix, found it, and I was like, oh, I've been meaning to watch this for ages. Uh, and the 
Netflix file. It wasn't my internet. The Netflix file they'd uploaded was corrupt to buggery. Oh, so it no. was full of artifacts, and it just kept um, sort of skipping and breaking. So I just thought, oh, fuck's sake. So I didn't watch it, and I just haven't got back to it. So I hope it's still on there, and they've actually fixed that, because I'm desperate <laughs> to watch that film. It's supposed to be it's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. And yeah, it just opens really hauntingly, doesn't it? So you've got oh, the... horrendous. What I like about this film is there is violence, but not really too much to the end. Yeah. But there's just this... There's just this oppressive sort of atmosphere of horrendous things happening out of it, out of sight, yeah. essentially. It's the implied themes, isn't it? The implied themes here are sick. Yeah, yeah. In a way, this is cinema being like playing on that rubbernecker in all of us. Yeah, who wants to like have a little look, you know, like as you go past something terrible, mm. or you know what I mean? Like it's just because we're all human at the end of the day, but this like. Oh, this window, this these these films in this world that Thomas Harris has created for me is like this is a window into hu- human sickness. You know, like I don't really have any other way to describe it. Yeah, and, and it is it is a, a subject of intrigue for everyone, isn't it? And has been for ages, and yeah, you know, still is. You know, that you only have to look at the success of true crime podcasts and documentaries and. It's such a popular subject. Yeah. Even now, like, it, it feels like appetite moves forward. Like, so this is fiction. Yeah. You know, what's going on here is fiction, but true crime stuff is real. We're all enjoying it because it, it didn't happen to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it's almost voyeuristic. It's mad how much we have an appetite for this absolute bleak darkness that is so close to what makes us human. It's yeah. just on the absolute offset of a prism. I just, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Where are we up to? Oh, sick antics with a torch. He's shining a torch in people's faces as he's walking into the house. Uh, being a, a murderous POV, oh, it always, it's always horrible. Yeah. There, there's a lot of that in this film, isn't it? There's a lot of POV yeah. stuff, particularly from the Tooth Fairy, and then a lot from Will Graham, who we haven't met yet. We'll meet shortly. <laughs> but it's a, it's a running motif of, the, of this film, a lot of POV stuff. And I think that's just it. Just in keeping with this theme of the movie, where it's it, it does get under your skin. You've got that tone straight from the off with this opening shot, where it's, it's yeah. through the eyes of this murderer, and yeah. and it really does set the tone for the whole film. How it is, you know, quite unnerving and a bit horrible. But yeah, you're 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 in there straight away, and you you complicit. Mm, you, absolutely, you're part of this as he's uh, starts icing people. It's horrendous. Well, the, when the woman the woman wakes up, doesn't she? And yeah. She's just illuminated by the torchlight, and we don't see what she's looking at. And then it cuts to the credits, the opening credits, with the dreadful font and the dreadful title. Uh, slash brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I can't <laughs> believe who made who signed off that that title card. <laughs> it's it's very close to Comic Sans. <laughs> Obviously, Michael Mann wasn't. Um... As heavyweight as he was now, because I, I I've heard that he's a very difficult customer when it comes to certain things. Is he? He doesn't fuck around, no. <laughs> yeah. He obviously didn't have the clout back then, so he was kind of overruled by his producers. But it's just it's just pretty shocking. But yeah, the the you get this retro synthy score, which is it's it's great. And this was the you know a lot of there's a lot of criticism aimed at the synthy soundtrack as well saying it's too yeah 
it's two eighties and it's too stylish and but it, it was made it in the eighties. What do you want? I can understand that criticism now, thirty odd years later. But yeah, I, what do you at want? At the time, it was the eighties. That was. <laughs> do you want them to go forward in time and find a more contemporary piece for modern audience? <laughs> what do you want? Yeah, I, I think the complaint was that it was too contemporary, and it, it, you know, scores are obviously, you know, classically sort of you know orchestral pieces and things like that. Whereas yeah. this was a pure pop synth. So, well, not pop because it's quite depressing, but, <laughs> but you know, it's a pure like contemporary way to make a score, and maybe all the 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 I don't like this. What what is going on with this, this nonsense noise? What the, the kids are listening to? Digital piano. Ugh. Yeah, but it, it's great, and especially now, like it's a it's a sound that has been. It's very popular nowadays, and it's been ripped yeah. off so many times. <laughs> since well, this then. and John Carpenter because... have just been ripped off all left, right, and center. Now, in yeah. terms of this, these style of scores, mm-hmm. but yeah, it works. I mean, some of the needle drops don't work quite as well. I don't think they're very much a product of their of their time. Yeah. But the score itself is is absolutely spot on. I thought, and really, I agree with you. Adds to that sense of unease. Absolutely. But doesn't it doesn't it as well fit Michael Mann's aesthetic, his oh, visual yeah. aesthetic? 100%. Because like all this neon, all this light, all this light created by humans, and the buzz of a filament that bzz, you know that bzz, and it fits the score, the synth that bzz, yeah. fits the score perfectly. It, yeah. The two, it's it's one of those beautiful matches of visual and oral. A U R A L. It just works. Yeah. Absolutely, it's it's like a, an ever present hum in the background, isn't it? And yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Particularly in this opening, it's just constantly there. And yeah, you're right, James. It just adds to that atmosphere and just really slots into what Michael Mann's doing with the camera. And it just it just works really well. It's amazing to net to to read that there was criticisms leveled at it. To be honest, they're just. It's just that good, and it's um, surprising it wasn't seen as that back then. Very silly. <laughs> and then Very silly. Bosch were, were from the from the credits were in Florida, beautiful blue Lovely skies action. and blue seas. So uh, Will Graham's chilling on the beach with Dennis Farina, who's one of my favourites. To be honest, did you know Dennis Farina was a real life policeman? Was he? Like uh, who th- who then became an actor in later life. He was like uh, I think Michael Mann worked with him on a lot of different things, you know, as sort of a te- technical advisor, and then he just started putting him into the movies. And, uh, yeah, he's in loads of Michael Mann stuff. That's awesome. I didn't know he was a cop, because I, I remember seeing a, uh, an interview with him. Was he in Get Shorty? Yeah. And um, there was an interview with him for, for in all the marketing for that, and he, he mentioned that. He just, like, f- fell into acting when he was a lot older. You know, he was doing that thing, like, it's never too late to follow your dreams. But I didn't know he was a cop. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. That's awesome. And basically, he's trying to get Will Graham to come back in. So what we find out is that that family who was in the cold open at the start has now has now been killed. They believe that the killer is working on a lunar cycle, which introduces a nice sort of ticking clock element yep. into the film. So they've got a month to find this guy. And Will Graham is the best profiler that the FBI have got, but he's retired because of the damage that the psychological toll that the last case took on him. And to be honest with you, given where he lives and he's just like putting like a little nice little turtle enclosure up around his lovely beachside 
house, I'd be telling Jack Crawford to sling his hook here. Look, <laughs> you and your <laughs> lovely quaffed uh, moustache. Get off my property. I'm very happy here. <laughs> I am not going back to that. I, I, I think this you've hit the nail on the head why this story. Because... The best movies rely on story. This story works, I think, and is so compelling because of those two things you mentioned there, James. The ticking clock is brilliant. It adds such a drama to it. It adds such a dynamism, and it forces the story forward. And then you've got, from that, this character in Will Graham, uh, who, honestly, I think he's a brilliant creation, Will Graham, because we first meet Will Graham when he's had enough of the job that we we grow to know him for. He's, he's already he's, a broken man, isn't he? Wasn't he's he? already yeah. done. He's already done. And that weight of backstory is so heavy that you can't help but be interested in this guy and root for him. And I also, I think, I'm going to be dead honest, I didn't know about William Peterson before watching this. No, I mean, obviously, I think if people watch CSI, they know who William Peterson is because he was the lead of that show. I've never seen that either. But that's, you know, 15 years after this. He's in a Friedkin movie, uh, To Live and Die in LA. Is that one? Oh, cool. He's in Thief as well, I think. Yeah, he is in Thief as well, yeah. Uh, And he's more of a, uh, he was more of a theatre actor, I believe. Right. And then Man wanted to bring him in for this. And I think he's absolutely brilliant. He really is. I think honestly, I think that here, what he does with the character and what the the setup of this character is, I think Will Graham's one of the most interesting, tormented, yeah, insane central characters you are going to find anywhere. And he's the hero. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, yeah. He's it's amazing. Is uh, and that's why this this whole thing works. You've got the fireworks with Lecter. Yeah. And Dollarhide. But the real groundwork, why we're all invested in this story, is because of how messed up Will Graham is. Yeah, Yeah, and the central conflict of the story is it's very much taking that old saying of it takes a killer to catch a killer to the nth degree because he's constantly having this battle within himself. Is am I as good at this because I'm as damaged and as unhinged and dangerous as as the people that I go after? Yeah. This is it. And and also, like, you know, is this also in this film one of the best betrayals that you'll find anywhere of the cost of the job of policing? Yeah, absolutely. And detective work and stuff like what it does to him and being forced to witness these things and forced to go to these places and see the sights he has to see to try and catch these people. The cost is so evident on him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think Will Peterson as well is like his performance is really subdued. And he's dead softly spoken. So then when you get those moments in the film where he does sort of go off the leash a bit, it's it's all the more impactful because you, yes. this for the first hour, he's just so measured and so like in himself. He doesn't seem to be a very extroverted person. He's a very introverted person. And the way he sort of addresses people, like I love this conversation between him and Jack because you just get it all in this one conversation. Yeah. And... Yeah, so this was another thing the critics did not like on release. They did not rate Will Peterson. They thought he was too oh. weak to lead a lead a movie like this, and that's where the film fell downwards. Because well, I, I couldn't disagree more. I just think he's that's the point of the performance to be like that. It doesn't need to be over the top and proper like um, 
Charlton Heston in it, just overacting everywhere, yeah. like chewing scenery left, right, and centre, because he's not going to work in the film like this. No. Um, and I think that's why he's so good. He's got gorgeous outfits as well. So oh, lovely yeah. 80s. Oh. His oh. beachwear is incredible. <laughs> uh, well, did you notice that at one stage his beachwear was a direct reversal of the amazing outfit um, Chad wore in um, Double Impact? <laughs> tight green shorts as opposed to tight pink. And a pink uh, pink polo shirt. I mean, yeah. This is the detail. That it's a homage. Intentional. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. No, this was first. This came before Double Impact. Yeah. Double Impact was paying a homage to Manhunter. Yeah, maybe Double Impact was paying a homage like Jurassic Park was paying homage to the Goonies with all uh, Nedry's outfits. <laughs> Double Impact. Anyway, from one brilliant movie to another. Um... <laughs> I love that. Um, it, I, I, do you know what I like about William Peterson here? His Will Graham it, it, and the character of Will Graham across all the portrayals. And this goes back to what Harris did: is that he's young. I've always loved this about the character. And he's finished, and he's a broken man. He's like yeah. in his thirties, and he's he's like, I am done. Like, That's I'm... so interesting. It seems that it's so interesting, and. I love this as well that you don't have to be an older person to be good at your job. I mean, he's revered. Like, the FBI is desperate for him to come back. Mm. But the implication, obviously, is that age is no precursor to ability. And I, I absolutely love that here. And that adds so much weight to this, too. Yeah. And what they say is he has the ability to look. So in, like, the Hannibal TV show, they make it almost like a superpower where he's able to reconstruct the the crimes exactly as they happen. Whereas in this, it's more just like he's able to empathise with the killer's point of view so that he can profile them correctly. It's a bit more realistic, essentially. Yeah. And this leads to some like really sort of like naked performances from him where he's just sort of talking out the killer's thought process to nobody, yeah. just staring into space and getting quite animated with it and like almost like he's interrogating someone who isn't there. It's just... It's yeah. a really, really brave performance. I think. It's amazing, isn't it? And he says, like, you, doesn't he? You're like, yeah. you stood there, didn't you? And you watched them from outside, didn't you? You know, like, he, and he switches from being in the killer's POV to his own judgmental POV. Yeah. It, it's just, it's so brilliantly written and so brilliantly played, this. And this is Man's adaptation. All this stuff is in the novel for the most yeah. part. But what Man I always find is really good at is. His dialogue is really matter-of-fact, really clipped, and it sounds so cool because he gets the the actors to just deliver it in the, you know, just the facts, basically, yeah. and everything is just as snappy as it can be. There's no fat at all. Yeah. God, this movie's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And I, I don't think we want to get into the overall machinations of the plot because it's no. quite twisty and turny and stuff like that. So, So basically, he's... He's sort of infamous because he caught Hannibal Lecter mm. back in the day, and that is the uh, the case that's messed him up and caused him to go into early retirement. Cost him everything. And he's decided, basically, that the way that he needs to get try and track down the Tooth Fairy is he needs to go and see Hannibal Lecter, which brings us to this first meeting. And Hannibal Lecter is in three scenes in this movie. Yeah, he's, he's, I think it's like yeah, it's less than 10 minutes in total mm. screen time yeah. for... for... Logan Roy. Um, he makes quite the mark, though, doesn't he? He does. <laughs> he really does. And as well, again, I don't want to go, oh, this is better than Anthony Hopkins. I love Anthony Hopkins. He's an amazing actor. He's great as Hannibal Lecter. He was amazing in The Father 
earlier this year. But this is also very good, and it's a very different take on that character. Is, a lot more is. grounded, almost like... I think they don't really make reference to the fact that he's a cannibal. I think it might be on a Tatler headline mm, at one it point. Is. It is. Um, but I don't think Michael Mann's interested in that at all, and it's all just in subtext. And anyway, William Peterson goes to see him because he needs to get... He needs to speak to a killer to get the scent, and he thinks that perhaps uh, Lecter might be able to, um, might be intrigued enough to give him some hints in terms of what this, what this per- the two fairy is like, and how he might go about catching him. And it's just an unbelievable exchange in this, in this bleached out cell, isn't it? Very different from the cell that he's in in Silence of the Lambs. Mm, very different. There's, um, I, I caught a review on Letterboxd about. Brian Cox's performance. It's, it's just a one-liner, but it's it's, it's really, really good. Uh, this was Mike Ginn, who said, Hopkins and Mickelson both play Lexa with a poison polish, but Brian Cox seems like he actually eats people. And Yeah, it is way more like sort of dialed back in terms of the, the you know, scary boogeyman type character yeah. which kind of Hopkins kind of does a bit like he hams it up a little bit and you know he's something to be physically scared of whereas Brian Cox is more you're kind of mentally scared of him yeah because he's just seems so calm and so like normal um and he's an arrogant bastard as well like, he, he just is, talks yeah. like he's just this proper public schoolboy arrogant swine who knows it all and he's better than everyone else in the room and it's just it's just I I didn't realize how Morley's part was because it's just so it's so memorable I, I think that when it, it's so powerful what he's doing here that once you've met him once and he's left that much of an imprint later on you find out that um he sent the Will Graham's home address yes yeah and you find that like just in a moment of dialogue exposition but mm-hmm. because he's left that much of an imprint you totally buy it. You don't. You don't see it as exposition. It's not like, oh well, we must go and do this now. You know that kind of thing. It's more like, wow, oh my god, that maniac from before, that terrifying, chilling dude, has now sent Dollarhide off to uh, Will Graham's home address. It's quite genius how he gets the address, isn't it? When, it is. Um, it's brilliant. It, it's uh, that. That's his. Uh, that's the middle of these three scenes, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's it's really really genius how he manages to wangle it, and he just gets it so easily, and just no one else would think to do it the way he does it. Being polite. Yeah. Being Open polite. doors. Uh, seriously. Oh, it's really God. good. But he, I think it's more like um, I know that it's quite highly rated to an extent. Brian Cox's portrayal of Hannibal Lecter, that a lot of people now say that this is a very good portrayal. Um, but I still think it's better than that. <laughs> I think it's, be- it's better than overrated. I just think it's amazing. It's just an amazing portrayal of a serial killer, this. Yeah, really it's is. because he seems so almost normal. That's what makes it more terrifying. And the fact that he's just messing with him the whole time that he's in there. He's just trying to get in his head. And he asks him about a colleague who discovered his basement. I heard he has uh, emotional problems. Have you got any emotional problems, Will? (laughs) And it's like, oh my God, this guy is an absolute lunatic. And he's enjoying it. Because this is he's like in this bleached out room all day where the light's on constantly by the looks of things. And the only enjoyment he gets out of life is just messing with the people who come to see him. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love that, you know, like, um, do you get any, um, do you have any emotional problems, Will, knowing full well he was the guy that put them there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's just, yeah, it, it's amazing. And again, it goes back to character creation here with Thomas Harris. Yeah. And Michael Mann recognises, wow, we can do something mega with this, yeah. with this dude. It's interesting as well, James, like you said, um, Will Peterson was the stage actor because this sort of first meeting between the two of them, it is very play-like, isn't it? It's just a, yeah. a simple yeah. shot, reverse shot, framed really nicely in between the bars. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's just two thesps just having a, you know, as if they're treading the boards, just doing this great exchange of this dialogue between the two of them. So yeah, it's I didn't know Will Peterson was known for being a stage actor, but um yeah, it makes sense when you see scenes like this are in the film. Yeah, that framing in the scene, because it's just a simple shot reverse shot, as you say, but he's positioned the camera in such a way that the position of the bars don't move. So they're both framed by the same set of bars. Yeah. Which just ramps up the claustrophobia completely. Yeah. Because Will Graham, he keeps it together, but then when he leaves, he almost has a panic attack, doesn't he? Because yeah. he's been in the presence of that evil once again, and it's reminded him. And then <laughs> as he's like sort of recovering outside of the hospital, Freddie Lowndes, this tabloid scumbag from um, from the ta- from the National Tatler, is taking <laughs> his photo, basically. Yeah, And I could not believe this was Stephen Lang oh, from I know, Avatar. I <laughs> Could not believe because I I saw his name on the credits and I was like oh it's Stephen Lang great and then it was like where is totally he? forgot <laughs> yeah. and then when the credits came up at the end I was like no that wasn't him what the the, the Weasley ginger journalist <laughs> <laughs> when did he start pushing weights I wonder because he's like a scrawny guy in this yeah <laughs> which well, it's, it's so different to anything you would expect Stephen Lang to play as well yeah absolutely like the the properly slimy really out for himself in his career kind of thing it's sensational Lionel Richie Jerry Curl mullet going on (laughs) (laughs) he's also really good in it but he's also part of one of the best ever scenes in this film which is when Dollarhide catches him Uh, Dollarhide is Thomas Noon is it Thomas Noon? Tom Noonan Tom Thomas Noonan I'm so sorry he is astonishing absolutely brilliant just astonishing scary man isn't he really scary scary man. man but that line do you see it's just astonishing so we've been hearing about the Tooth Fairy the whole time, haven't they? And they're not getting anywhere. So what they do is they get Lowndes to sort of write an inflammatory article in the Tatler because that's how the Tooth Fairy and Hannibal Lecter have been communicating through the personal ads in the back of that magazine or paper or whatever it is because they think that might draw him out to come for Will Graham. But he doesn't. He comes for Lowndes instead. And this is about 55 minutes in. So we've heard about the tooth fairy all the way through, but we haven't seen anything. We haven't, all we've seen is the aftermath of the murders Mm. throughout and the sort of the forensic science that's gone in to try and track him down, which is really interesting as well, because there was none of that going on. This sort of set the table for those sort of forensic science police procedurals, I think that would then go on to sort of dominate the nineties and the two thousands. And then we see him, and the first time we see him, he's absolutely massive, and he's got like a stocking over half of his face, hasn't he? And then, yeah, Rob, as you, as you say, he starts taking him through a, a, not the most pleasant slideshow I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, 
but it's it's such a good scene. It's not his trip to Marbella. No, it's not his it's not his recent <laughs> fishing excursion to Jamaica. No, it's not. Um Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? And it's the matter of factness of it all. It's it's just brilliant. And again, this is this character that's been built is just so great. And then when you twin a great actor like um Thomas Noonan with this, you you <laughs> Uh, Thomas Noon was also in the brilliant um, one of the standout episodes of X-Files in season 4 Paper Hearts again this guy he's brilliant he's got such I think his his delivery and his look are almost too unique to have given him a more higher you know like um, a massive massive career if you know what I mean like because he will always be remembered so quickly he's almost too unique too incredibly unique yeah, if you know what I well, mean. Well, there's that brilliant joke. He's in Last Action Hero, isn't he? And doesn't he? He is. Yeah. He turns yeah, up yeah, yeah. in the meta third act. He turns up as in character in the body and as the real Tom Noonan, and his agents going mad at him, like, "Do you want to get typecast as psychopaths?" And he's the uh, he's the guy in Heat as well, who basically invents the internet and tells Neil McCauley about where he gets all this information. He's like, "You just it's just out there in the air, and you just gotta." Pluck it out. <laughs> <laughs> He's an amazing actor. Another ridiculously good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we could get tied up, couldn't we, in the middle here? But there's there's so much investigation that goes on here with old school urgency. We're talking phones, libraries, newspapers. Yeah. You know, trying to catch newspapers before they go to the print. Um, I love the fact this is pre-internet because yeah, it lends so its own sense really of febrile urgency. It? Yeah, it really does, yeah. And, it, it, you know, every technological change adds a problem for a screenwriter. But it was so great to go back into a place where it was dead simple like this. You know, it was phones and Fact you machine. rang up someone if you needed to pass on information. You know, it was so good. Yeah, that's what I loved about because because after you see um, Dollhide for the first time, it does kind of ramp up a bit in terms of the the pursuit of him. Whereas that first half is just trying to figure it out and get into the mind of him a bit more and sort of lay out all that for the second half. But it's all it's always got that bit of like they're just constantly running around and it's all dead frantic, like they're in the like the the police station, just like legging it to the interview rooms and. Will Graham is flying all over the place. Yeah. Um, just there's this, this constant moving, like the whole thing is just moving the whole time. And yeah, you really, it, it just really adds to the tension of it all because it's, it's a lot more difficult to get information <laughs> back then. Yeah, you can just feel the graft of it and the, t- and the toll that takes before you even get into the psychological damage that's, <laughs> that's being done to the people investigating. And then, yeah, it's probably got one of the best midpoints in any film ever. So Freddie Lowndes is kidnapped isn't he and then and then he's sort of dropped off back at his vehicle at the parking garage in uh fairly unceremonious oh my god <laughs> circumstances <laughs> so yeah you just see this parking attendant and he can sort of hear something rolling towards him and then he looks and like there's a look of horror come over his face and he just sprints away and then we get the reverse and it's just a a body that's been set on fire and tied to an office chair and rolled down the ramp of the parking garage. <laughs> Just terrible. It's one of the most arresting images. And it's the only real image of violence that we've seen so far. 
in the yes. film other than crime scene photographs. Like, yeah. we haven't actually seen anyone be murdered at this stage, and we're an sure. hour into this serial killer movie. Because all the horror has been implied yeah, already. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Thematically. And then from there, we almost get a shift, don't we, that we start to learn a little bit more about Dollarhide and we can move away from the investigation as such, because now oh, we as the audience know who, who the killer is, so now we need to sort of understand a bit more about him. Yeah, this is another really brave thing to do, isn't it? Let the audience know who the killer actually is. So we know it's yep. Dollarhide from a very early point. Then watching him sort of carve out this uh, relationship with Joan Allen's character, it's hard. It's hard to watch this. Reba, Reba McLean is her name. Yeah. And she's obviously very trusting of Dollarhide, saying he's a very gentle man and stuff. Well, she can tell that he had a speech impediment when he was a kid because he's facially disfigured from potentially having a cleft palate or, yes. or something. None of this is explicitly said within the movie. It's all just sort of hinted at and and played. And obviously there's a lot more detail around this kind of thing mm. in the novel itself. You get the whole backstory mm. of what made Dollarhide what he is. And I like that brevity within the storytelling in terms of Michael Mann gives you just enough in terms yes. of sort of, right. He doesn't go into the whole transformation into the Red Dragon. It's sort of mentioned, but it's like right. You don't need to know the ins and outs of this and what it actually represents. It's just right. He's the buddy. He's off his rocker. Facial dis- uh, and Reba is uh, is a blind woman who works in uh, in the photo in the photo lab, isn't it? Isn't she? And um, and yeah, they they sort of strike up a relationship. Immediately, because he's very to the point, and she likes that because people often tiptoe around her because of her uh, because of her lack of sight, and obviously she's not intimidated by him because he's this massive guy, and usually people recoil at his at his disfigurement or or think he's a weird guy because he's so so tall and imposing, and they sort of mm. strike up a romance as a result, and it's a really tender one. Yeah, yeah. With with some lovely Peruvian pipe music to support it. <laughs> Is it the sax from uh, the Peruvian sax from uh, Showdown Little Tokyo? No, it's got some like lovely, <laughs> just lovely like wooden pipes, like or it might be bottles or something. I don't know, but it's very, uh, it's very strange music for the saucy scene between the two of them. Um, yes, but he he gets quite conflicted, doesn't he? Because he's he. She's been so nice to him and so kind to him, and then, which then ultimately leads to romance and intimacy, and he's not used to that, so he gets mm. conflicted as the you know you sort of start to see a change in him, mm. where you're like maybe he you know he doesn't want to be that person who's the psychopathic killer, but he <laughs> yeah um, because he just wants to be treated properly. Obviously, that all goes out the window when he uh, <laughs> he sees what he thinks is her cheating on him. Well, yes. My, my son has a big uh, thing about now. Um, he just walks into rooms and shouts, Yeet! Um, <laughs> as much as he laughs. And that was how I felt when, uh, you know, the cheating thing was noticed. It, it's so good because, um, you know, it's, it's filmed two ways, isn't it? So it's filmed how he sees it. Um, which is them having a real romantic moment, but then you see it how it actually is, and he's just like getting an eyelash off her or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah just yeah. something really. Yeah. Just a colleague dropping off his, his yeah. blind co worker at home. <laughs> 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 Poor guy. 
Well, he got yeeted. Yeah, he did. Yeah, because yeah, it's um, he, he's walking back to his car, and he, this is the first time we actually see someone murdered on screen, and he he just plugs him about six times in the chest, doesn't he? And this is where the film starts to deviate. It's been pretty faithful adaptation at this stage, but he do, man does change the ending. He makes it more economical. Everything sort of shakes out the same way as it does in the novel, but he makes it more economical. Um, because there's a whole thing in the novel where where they think Dollarhide is is dead. The FBI do because they found a um, a burnt to death body in 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 Reba's apartment. But it was actually this guy that they killed. And then Dollarhide then turns up at um, Will Graham's Florida house because he got the home address off Hannibal Lecter earlier. And then. He, he tries to kill Graham and he has, he ends up being saved by his wife. But that's not what happens in this version of the movie. Yes, because that's what happens in the Edward Norton one, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Because um, mm. cause I did sort of mix the two, got confused with the two, because I was watching <laughs> it and I was like, there's only 10 minutes left, but he's got to go to his beach holiday home. In- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then obviously that doesn't happen in this version. Um, but sometimes, you know, artistic license isn't it sometimes you can't fit everything um from a book into it was right for the story and the constraints you've got and i think back in the day they were very much like you know movies are supposed to be two hours long maximum and he went right well what what can i lose here all right well i can sort of achieve what i'm going for and i'm more interested in the psychology of will graham and him putting certain ghosts to rest through the course of this so i think this will work thematically for my story, and it's more economical because they basically figure out that that Dollarhide is uh, is the tooth fairy, and they head to his house, don't they? And then we get sort of like a classic kind of Michael Mann last reel shootout, which is what he would then become famous for in his later film. Yeah. So he kidnaps Reba, doesn't he, and takes her back to his house, and he throws on some Inner Garden of Vida, which is in no way completely disturbing. <laughs> 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 and then basically it's all all cops on on deck they're they're heading towards his house they can't wait for the backup they've got to go in and this is when it becomes super stylized isn't it we've got shotgun blasts going off we've got things being cranked up being reversed um really quite brutal violence at this section, Graham gets his face slashed oh, yeah. by Dollarhide because he jumps through the window. Doesn't he? Total maniac! Yeah, <laughs> I just don't like when yeah he just slow mo runs through the window and then yeah he just just catches him <laughs> like <laughs> like he'd come off the top turnbuckle. Yeah, yeah, like and then just lobs him into a fridge, doesn't he? Yeah, he cuts his face and lobs him into a fridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really full on this 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 bit because. You know, it, it it's just the explosion from the build-up because it's such a tense build-up throughout this first, what, hour 45. This is like the last 15 minutes, isn't it? Yeah. Everything just goes bonkers in this bit and it's really, like, cut really frenetically. You've got this, like, endless stream of cops who keep running into the house and yes, we're just getting yeah. blown away <laughs> by, um, by Dollarhide. It, it's just a complete contrast to the rest of the film. Probably just seeing the two hours was approaching. He was like, "Come on, let's just yeah, yeah. move this along, guys." <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's been hinting at this violence all the way through, hasn't it? And yeah, now at yeah. this point, it explodes, and this is what it shows you the real horror of of of, uh, 
of what happens when people are, are murdered, essentially. And yeah, a few yeah. cops get absolutely iced, and then eventually Graham gets the drop on on Dollarhide and manages to plug him full of holes, doesn't he? Yeah. As he as he dies on the floor, the the blood emanates out, and that makes the sort of image of the red dragon. Nah. Art. Yeah. This is art. Reba must be just poor woman. Must what be is like, going what on? What the fuck is going <laughs> yeah, on? Yeah. Can't oh. see anything. Just all this crazy She's... noise. <laughs> <laughs> She's so good, Joan Allen, in this as well. Yeah, really, really good. Um, and then he goes home to his kids, doesn't he? he? Goes home to sorry, his one kid. Yeah. Played by David Seaman. <laughs> Not That's his David. actual name. Is it? Yeah, David Seaman. <laughs> yeah, David Seaman. Before his illustrious goalkeeping career. Uh, <laughs> well, it was the 80s. Um, I don't think he aged that quickly between then and Euro 96. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> playing for Arsenal by like two, two years on from this. <laughs> he just hit puberty and then just that was it. Arsenal career. Yeah, the most decimating puberty of all time. The most crippling <laughs> battle with puberty. Um, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, uh, Will Graham goes home and he's back to retirement, it seems. Back on his lovely beach. Yeah, it's a fitting end to the character's journey. Yeah. Well, he's got closure now, hasn't he? And, um, I mean, obviously, Lecter is still demented in a cell, winding him up. But <laughs> <laughs> but it, he's got a bit of closure. You know, he's finally caught caught his man and he's, he's, he's a different... Um, Graham than he's he seems to have exercised a lot of his demons by the end. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a different Graham on this beach than he was at the start when he was a bit subdued and distant. So yeah, it's it's, it's a nice sort of poetic way. It's a bit full circle, isn't it? Mm. Ending at the on this beach with his family. It's That's a lovely right. happy ending for what is a very very unsettling film. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, should we ask at this point um, about your your favourite bits? Let's have your favourite bits. What do you think? So, as I've just hinted at, I do enjoy unexpected wrestling moves in high-class movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, by that token, I really enjoyed the moment when uh, Graham rock-bottoms tabloid scumbag Freddie Lowndes on the hood of a car. That was <laughs> yes, enjoyable. Yes. He totally does rock bottom. Did you hear oh Jim Ross with your head? Oh rock bottom, rock bottom. Oh oh it broke him in half. It broke him in half. <laughs> uh, in reality, though, it's the, the first meeting between Graham and Lecter. It's a phenomenally well-directed, electrifying dialogue exchange, particularly the you-had-disadvantages moment, which I just think is one of the best dialogue exchanges ever. I don't know yeah. if you can drop that in, Simon, because I couldn't possibly do it justice. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes? You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything positive. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. God, this movie's good. <laughs> Sorry. God. Um, so, Sai, what about you? 
I wouldn't necessarily this bit's my favourite bit just because it's so grim. A favourite seems like the wrong word. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 when the car park security dude sees a flaming uh, <laughs> Freddy Lowndes <laughs> flying down the ramp. And just the, the way it just like like heads towards the camera and it doesn't cut away and you just see it smash the camp smash the lens and it just leaves this this gross blood smear on the, on the lens. It's just like oh uh, really horrible. But just because that's just so like it's quite makes quite an impact that shot, doesn't it? Because yeah. <laughs> it's just like Jesus. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what really gets under your skin as well is the fact that they're at the hospital in the next scene and it turns out that Freddie Lowndes made it to the hospital so he was still alive when oh, all that was happening what? to him. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, Jesus creepers. Um for myself, uh, it's the moment that Will Graham um makes one of the deductive moments in the movie you know when he works out part of dollar dollar hides modus operandi and this is with the talcum powder he's watching the tv i think and he's like um you touched her didn't you with your bare hands you had to touch her didn't you you bastard you know all this mm-hmm. and it was because he had talc on the inside of his gloves and he had to yeah. take, you know had to take the gloves off to touch his victim and and then he he rolled straight into ringing someone up and saying, "You got to check inside of the thighs, uh, corneas, everything." He touches his victims now, you know. Uh, it just it's like that moment, like because Peterson is so so good in it, and oh, it's that it drives the story on to the next. Like as a as a viewer, you're like <gasps> you dragged on to the next scene, like yep. massively, just picked up grabbed through and it's a mix of brilliant performance brilliant writing adds to the world so much and adds to the myth of both will graham and dollar hide so um yeah that's my favorite bit for me i usually go for something stupid like someone's wearing maroon slacks um but um <laughs> like a rock to... bottom of a journalist on <laughs> <laughs> james i love how we've swapped tonight you can have the rock bottom of freddie lounge i love how you both pick freddie lounge Terrible things happen to Freddie Lowndes. It's the FYR line on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, FYR, for your reconsideration, what do you think? Uh, James, you'll go last. It was your pick, mate. Sai, what do you think? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's a tense procedural slow burn of a film um, with, a, with a really wonderful aesthetic. Um, it looks and sounds brilliant. It's it's a movie with a real bold visual style um, and a score and soundtrack that's just so undeniably 80s i just love every single second of it it's equal part stylish thriller and brooding horror that really gets under the skin um held together with an ensemble of stirring performances and some deft direction from man who ju- is just brilliant isn't he it's a nonsense to see criticism saying it's very dated um when it's just something that's been aped relentlessly in recent years and I- imitation is the sincerest form of flattery so um, yeah, screw you who say it's outdated and and schlocky and hokey because um, it really isn't. <laughs> it's really good. I just couldn't agree more. For myself, um, are you insane? This is absolutely brilliant. This is my uh, the, my favourite thing I've watched all year. I absolutely adored it. Um, if you want to talk about dating things, the, hu- the the sickness of the human condition will not date. Humans are always capable of horrible things. It's the portrayal of them that that you might say will date. Um, I think this is a a place in time, a piece in time that is so 
brilliantly executed. It is bolstered by brilliant performances from every single person on that screen, be it extra right up to Brian Cox and William Peterson. These Everyone is brilliant. But no one is outshining Michael Mann and his achievement here in what he's done. It's just absolutely brilliant, this movie. Every aspect of this is elite. And this all comes back as well to the absolute brilliance of the world that Thomas Harris has created here and the characters that he has thrown together. He has quite clearly got an affection for the absolutely twisted. But that all comes to our benefit. It's just absolutely amazing, this. I don't think I can give a stronger recommendation. I don't think I've given a stronger recommendation on this podcast. You have to go and watch Manhunter immediately. Yep. I mean, I can't really add a lot to that. I think you guys have both covered everything I was going to say. Obviously, I picked it. I really love this movie. I would put it in Man's top three. So I'd have Heat, then Thief, then this as three absolute five-star faultless movies that he's directed. Uh, which he made over the course of 15 years, which is absolutely amazing. And then you've got other classics like Mohicans as well and The Insider, which are absolutely brilliant movies in their own right. Yeah, looking back at it now, it just feels massively influential on the twisted serial killer thrillers that would dominate the 90s, and it sits proudly alongside Silence of the Lambs as the best entries in the THCU. That's the Thomas Harris <laughs> Cinematic Universe. <laughs> and yeah, I just think everyone should check it out and Michael Mann should really be let out of movie jail now. You know, Black Hat, yeah, it was a bit of a bomb, but let him make another movie. He's getting on a bit now. He wants to work. Let him work. Black Hat was in a list of, uh, I think it was in one of the broadsheets this week, saying uh, one of the most, um, the best flops of all time. Oh, is it coming back around for the re- reappraisal? It's, wow. it's on the list. It's def- definitely on the list for, for, for future. Like, I haven't seen it, though, so I can't really bring <laughs> it. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I need to watch it. I need to give it another go. I didn't get on with it the first time. The first couple of times. I've tried a couple of times with it, and I didn't get on with it. Is it is it digital? Like Yeah, uh, it's digital, yeah, which is not a move that I've enjoyed of his, to be honest. Yeah, that was a strange pivot, wasn't it? I haven't um, seen Miami Vice either, actually. That's another one which, which needs a... Oh, because that's on my list for this. <laughs> we um, just become a Michael Mann podcast. <laughs> no, it is, it is, because I, I really love that movie. It's hilarious, but I really love it. Like most of the things I pick. Stupid, but brilliant. It's the official line. <laughs> um, Collateral's great as well though there was a lad I used to work with who, really good. he he was very um, picky with his movies and he'd only give something like if something was five stars it would only be a handful of films that he would say are that good and Collateral was one of them yeah. on his list it was brilliant that movie. that's his most popcorn movie out of all the ones he's made Yeah, it's just the digital as I say, the, his pivot to digital was at a time when it wasn't quite there yet, the technology, so it just looks a bit shonky. Yeah, he wouldn't be told. It was basically Zemeckis with the motion capture, wasn't it? <laughs> He's like, Bobby, this isn't working, man. And he's like, no, I'm going to... This is the future. This is the future. Because David Lynch had a similar one as well. Um, He did a film when it was to digital, and it was at that time, it just didn't look... It just looks cheap at that point. Yeah. Um, but still a great film. It's still a really good film, despite that um, weird digitalness. Love it, love it, and love the chat. It's nice to talk about a real 
gold standard gold movie. movie. Um, once in a while on the pod. Yep. Uh, before we go back to pastures more familiar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of which, um, Sai, it's your pick next. What are we having? Uh, I've just had a really wrestled with what to pick. Um, I thought it was finally time for the Man from Uncle, but it doesn't qualify anymore because it's got loads of retrospective reviews and it's popped up to like 75% <laughs> oh, now, so I just can't do that. Plus, <laughs> there's the controversy surrounding Army Hammy. So yeah, I don't really want to get into that. Yeah. Stay away. <laughs> <laughs> stay away that um, what I'm going to pick, uh, it, it's, a, it's a bit late uh, because we've completely missed Halloween, but I don't care. I make the own, I make my own rules for this podcast. So I'm gonna watch uh, the video game adaptation Silent Hill. Ooh, please! Never seen. Never seen. So, too scared of the seen. video game, so never watched the movie. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Too much mist, as I remember. <laughs> Lovely. Any excuse to watch Scene Bean um, in a movie? Cannot wait. That will be outstanding. Um, well, thank you very much, fellas. Um, as always. It's a triumph and a pleasure to hang out with you both. Can't wait to sh- to chat Scene Bean <laughs> and Silent Hill. Is it Rodder Mitchell as well? Uh, I think it is. Yes, I think it is Rodder Mitchell. And um, Sound. the one out of uh, Walking Dead is in it as well. Laurie Holden. Laurie Holden, yeah. Yeah, it's a good cast actually. Yeah. And written by Roger Avery. So um, what a treat. Absolutely. Outstanding. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. And it'll be in your ears soon, listeners. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Always appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed tonight. Please give us five stars on your subscription service of choice. Um, Please tune in next time for Silent Hill. And uh, go easy. Go uh, enjoy your lives. Say goodbye, boys. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Bye-bye. See ya. (laughs) Do you see?